trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger. So we chat to people about the skills and tools that you need to find. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things. But just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. Please allow me to introduce Andrew Witten. Andrew's the Managing Director of Prandium Capital. Andrew is an experienced lawyer and corporate advisor and has over 25 years of experience in advising companies and specializes in navigating the ASX rules. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Andrew, do you want to just start with just an introduction of how or why you, you sort of got into finance? Because um, I'm a nerd. I started with um, a love of a movie called Wall Street with uh, Michael Douglas that was a big movie in the 80s and it was all, all with Charlie Sheen. It was all about insider trading. Um, and since then, I've just started a fascination with everything markets. Um, and so, you know, started off basically kind of trading ASX stocks and interested in the stock market from a young age. And that stayed with me in terms of listing companies, advising companies and just being involved in small caps. So did you start out like having a big punt in something and, and that led, led you into, you know, yeah. undertaking yeah. studies? What sort of happened? Well, in 1997, I did a backdoor listing, uh, reverse was now they often call a reverse takeover. And I was, I, was, I was involved in the shell that was provided to put the biotech company into it. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the process. So I enjoyed the value that was made for shareholders. Um, and, and I thought, you know what, I better go. And I was dealing with a lot of lawyers when I was handling it. Um, and I didn't know a lot. I hadn't started my law degree then. So I thought I better go off and kind of learn how this all works if I want to do it. And I kind of then decided I wanted to be involved in that world. So I went off and got a law degree, um, and then, and then worked, um, extensively in the area, including corporate governance, both. Um, I ran the largest company se- outsourced company secretarial business in Australia for ASX listed um, and built that up, which was which is now the Atomic Group, um, which is what I think um, I think it's now the second or third biggest share registry in Australia. So I have a long background. That's that's why. Okay, cool. Well, do you want to? Um, that's a good segue when you're talking about an RTO or reverse takeover. I guess if if listeners are coming across this sort of notion for the first time, maybe you can talk about the difference in the legal structure between an unlisted and how a company becomes listed through through a said backdoor listing. Yeah, or, or a front door listing. Um, effectively, what, what when you do a listing, you take a public company, uh, which is subject to the kind of normal co- Corporations Act provisions a public company would be, and then you apply another set of rules over the top of it called the ASX listing rules. And, that's, and the company actually, when it gets listed, signs a contract to 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 agree to to abide by and comply with the ASX listing rules, and those listing rules, um, there's 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 different um, uh, chapters, and some of them talk about um, 
you know, the relationship between the board and the shareholders, what company, what you can and can't do without shareholder approval, and effectively set of rules that govern the operations of the business, um, the operations at a corporate level of the company. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and I've seen over the 25 years I've been involved in listings, I've seen them used well, I've seen them used badly, and I've seen them not used at all. Um, so, so, and I'll talk to you, you know, should you want me to a bit about that? And just on the differences, I suppose. So, are those rules for listed companies generally over and above what would be if yes. you're listed and unlisted? Yes, there's an extra company? layer of kind of obligations and responsibilities and rules above that. Um, so, so for example, as a public unlisted company, you can effectively issue as many shares as you want to anyone. Um, whereas, well, I mean, there's related party provisions, but 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 you, there's no restriction on the quantum of the capital you can issue. Whereas the ASX rules. Um, will allow you only to issue up to 15%. You can actually, or or 25% in circumstances of the company's capital without shareholder approval. So, so effectively, if the shareholders agree to be diluted, you can do a deal. But if they don't agree to it, so there's an extra what I regard as an extra kind of check and balance in the process designed to protect shareholders and preserve the integrity of a market. That's kind of the main rules, main reasons behind it. Yeah, okay. So it might not be that things can't be done in in that structure. There's just like say more more oversight. Yeah, generally, what always kind of operated. You can almost do almost everything, provided you're open, transparent, and you get shareholder approval for it. <laughs> um, within reason, obviously. Um, so yeah. You you mentioned sort of some of the protections that uh, shareholders have with a listed entity, Andrew. Yep. Are there any sort of extra regulatory frameworks, um, you know, requirements from the ASX without getting sort of Yeah, look, without too getting too technical, there are. Um, the ASX now has what they call a corporate governance um, guidelines. They're not, they're not um, kind of law or, regu- or enforced by the ASX, but they're a separate set of guidelines which talks about board practices, board governance, independence, diversity, et cetera. Um, and a lot of institutional investors now look at your board composition and whether or not it complies with those policies in deciding whether or not to invest. So, um, you know, obviously sustainability for, for a lot of companies is important and ESG statement is, is very much important. Um, and things like um, board composition, diversity, et cetera, and independence of boards. Um, a lot of small companies Generally, you know, major shareholders are often on the board as well as kind of being either service providers or vendors of assets to the business, um, which means that there's not often a lot of independence on on small boards. That's something that's becoming a lot more popular and has been for some time. And the ASX, whilst they don't kind of stop you doing it, you have to report that you don't comply with their guidelines. Um, And that that actually is is useful for a lot of investors. and um, and then I mean, there's various other provisions, um, you know, that, that stop you doing things like you can't buy an asset from a director without going to shareholders, for example. It's logical. It's for protection of direct of the of the shareholders that aren't represented at board level that might say, well, we don't want to buy that asset, or it's overvalued, or you know. No, that's really good, Andrew. Um, we might um, come to some of those provisions just a bit later toward the end, but 
I guess, you know, what our listeners are all probably interested in and what you're really passionate about talking about is, I guess, in your experience as a corporate advisor, um, you know, the, the your experience with small caps and, and transitioning them from, from an unlisted to a listed and now there's a secondary market and, and, and feeding the beast. But um, I won't paraphrase some of the stuff you want to talk about, but do you have any sort of general principles that some of these listed entities should sort of observe and, and how yeah. they should go about things? Yeah, um, there's a number of them uh, over my years of doing this that I say regularly to people. Um, what the first is a listing is a little bit like a marriage. Um, when you get out of it what you put into it. So if you are not nice to your spouse, if you give your spouse no time, you never buy your spouse chocolates, flowers, you know, cufflinks, whatever, and you, you expect love in return, that's just never going to happen. Um, whereas if you put effort into a relationship, um, you, you will get paid back. And what I mean by that in ASX context is the CEO, the CFO, the board need to dedicate resources and time to managing their shareholder base, to managing institutional investors, research houses, etc. It's one thing to list, but there's roughly 2,400 listed companies on the ASX. And you've got to get noticed if you're a small cap. Most of, I think it's something like, um, I wish I had the stats in front of me, but something like 800 of those or 1,000 of those companies left, have less than 30 million market cap, right? So to get noticed in that area when you first list at 30 or 50 or 60 million, you have to get out there and promote yourself. You have to talk to all the brokers, the right brokers. There's no point going to see Macquarie Bank about a $30 million company you should be seeing the smaller cap brokers that specialise in those companies. Um, and, and likewise, you don't see a mining house if you've got an industrial deal or a tech deal. You see the right brokers for the right company and you've got to promote and you've got to get out there and tell your story. Um, and then there's a few other kind of rules that flow off that. That's kind of the overarching um, thought process. You've got to always um, don't overpromise and underdeliver, underpromise and overdeliver. Once you've made a promise publicly to the market, whether you're going to kind of be cash flow positive by X date, or you're going to build your next tech and deploy it by X date, or you're going to, you know, spend X dollars drilling a mining hole, um, drilling a hole, um, you must go and do that. So only enunciate publicly milestones you know you're going to achieve. And then report back and say you've achieved them. Tell the market, it's like you tell the market what you're going to do, and then you confirm that you've done it. That way you build trust and credibility with your shareholders and they're less likely to sell. And if there's less stock sold there's, and more stock buying, your price goes up. It's not it's, That's not that complicated. Um, and vice versa, if you promise things and you don't deliver them, you blow your credibility. Once you've blown your credibility at market level with brokers, institutional investors and kind of high net worths and, the, and that small cap community, it's actually very difficult to get it back. It's hard and difficult to get it back because everyone regards you as the you told us a story, you didn't follow through, you're a liar. Um, that's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it, but it's certainly the experience. Um, so you've got to regularly promote your company and put money and capital to work doing that. Um, and then, um, and also manage your register actively is one really, really important thing. If you know of a shareholder that needs to get out for whatever reason, they might be in a fund that's closing, um, they have, like, having a divorce, personal circumstances, whatever reason, and they have a chunk of shares that you know is going to come on the market, 
it's not your job, but it is your job as a kind of company to go run around and try and find a buyer and bed the stock down. Because if they sell it through the market, a lot most of these small caps are illiquid. Um, so if they sell it through the market, they're just going to flood the market and, and, and the price will go down. Whereas if you manage your register actively and get the right shareholders in there that understand your story, that will back you, you know, not, maybe not forever, but for a period of time to build the share value and build the company, then that's pretty important as well. Um, and, and hire the right people. Don't hire your friends. Like, don't put a friend on as company secretary if they've never had the experience. Um, it's actually technical and get the right people around you to help you. There's lots of people who kind of do ASX work and there's some, and it's the whole spectrum of people who are very competent right through to people that, that, that kind of dabble in the space but don't really know what they're doing. And it's important to get the right brokers, advisors, board members, professional people around you because they actually can add a lot of value. Just, I've got a few things I'd love to sure. dig into there, Andrew, but just on the topic of which people to hire, you mentioned having the right um, resources in-house to communicate with shareholders yeah. and do that communication piece. Do you think there's particular skills or attributes and have you noticed anything where maybe an MD or a CEO isn't the best person and how they've gone about making sure that job's been done well when it maybe not is their natural Yeah, look, I, I've seen, I've also seen CEOs who, who doesn't come naturally promoting. They might be a kind of cautious individual and not a, uh, promoter, um, but there's a couple. You usually can find someone else inside the company who has that personality, be it the chairman, be it the CFO, the COO, one of the directors. That's always possible. Second is um, people can be trained and coached, um, and I've actually seen a CEO of and I'm not going to say who, but about a three hundred million dollar market cap, and when he listed his business he was nowhere near as confident and competent in presenting results, the vision, articulating that to the market and to the broking world um, where he is now. You know, within two years of kind of having media and coaching, media training and coaching, um, you wouldn't know it was the same person presenting. He's much more polished, much more presentable um, and, and speaks with a lot more confidence He's also, he's in this scenario, he's also done it a lot more. So it's also about practice. It's about getting out there and getting in front of people and making regular presentations. Your first investor presentation is absolutely terrifying, right? The fifth, the, the, by the fight, by doing five or 10, you're kind of okay with it. By the time you've done 50, it's, it's chalk and cheese. It's second nature. Um, so it's about practicing and not being afraid to do that. Um, in, in small cap ASX world. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a yeah. lot about awesome. yeah, so repetition and experience, and training, I guess, to training. help bolster it. And um, that sort of goes back, one of the early things you mentioned as well was, uh, in my mind, you, you talked about constant communication and setting go goals that are yeah. achievable. But I think there's sometimes a conflict, obviously, or companies get a bit distraught when they do set the wrong goals, then they fail, and then it all goes bad, and then they just bunker down and they stop stop talking. And instead of actually explaining what's gone wrong it's just like we'll say nothing or we'll try and change the story and then stop telling that story as well in my observation i think i'm curious of your thoughts of um what a company can do when they've made some of the mistakes that you maybe already talked about and how they can try and recover from first thing is own them right don't sit there and say oh we really didn't mean that when we said we get to cash flow positive we kind of meant that but we didn't mean that and blah blah um so the first thing is just kind of cop it and say we made a mistake let's move on right Second um, is try and have something, 
as a catalyst for change inside the company. Often when they failed at a strategy, um, someone once said it to me, they said it's unlikely that the CEO who gets you into a failed strategy is the same guy that gets you out. So often a catalyst is board change, CEO change, COO change, CFO change, et cetera. Um, you know, like, for example, if a company doesn't lodge their accounts on time um, and they get suspended, which happens with little companies from time to time, or will have problems with their accounts, ASIC has an issue with their accounts, generally at that point, you'd look at whether or not the CFO is being fired, right? Um, so don't be afraid to change something if it's a problem. Um, the worst you can do in a public company is sit there and try and kind of cover it up and move on. The market is smarter than that. Um, identify how the problem happened and then fix it um, and then um, and then move on to the next thing and try and rebuild that trust and confidence as fast as you can. That's the only kind of advice I've got on that. But it is difficult in public market to recover from manifest mistakes. I'm not talking about little things. I'm talking about real kind of, you know, um, like big strategic problems. The other thing I'm going to say on that, and this is my experience with companies generally, but in particular ASX, you get a fail on something, do it fast and do it cheaply. Um, so if you've got a strategy where you might be trying to acquire customers by X method, and it's just not working, you're not getting the customers, but you're spending lots on sales and marketing, don't keep spending more to prove that that thing works because you're just, you're just, do be doing the same thing. You'd be spending money on something that doesn't work. Pivot and try something else. And don't be wedded to a business model. If you look at most tech companies, the business model they end up with is not the business model they start with. And that is through a process of pivoting, listening to the market, listening to the customers, and pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. And it never stops. If you look at Amazon, I mean, you know, the delivery business, then they went into web services, now they own the world, right? So they pivoted it and diversified. Um, and why, that's one of the reasons why it's such an interesting company because it keeps pivoting and diversifying. Um, and whereas some companies that that love their business model and think it's going to go forever, whatever, um, aren't around anymore. Or, or you know, I mean, Canon Canon's one of the examples with um, you know digital t t uh, technology and things like that. So I mean, there's lots of examples, but you've got to innovate. And ASX is is no different. That's really interesting. Do you think how much, I guess, Andrew, how much reference or allowance do you make for the last two years that we've had? I mean, there's been no shortage of IPOs and sure. tech listings. So I can just hear myself or a director or someone saying, yeah, that's really, really valuable, Andrew, but what about it, this or what about that? And, you know, it sounds like it's easy with the benefit of hindsight. But, oh, you know, sure. when you're in there and one of our other guests just recently talked about directors maybe taking a step back and, and looking at what are they good at. But I'm just trying to think about sort of tools for people here, uh, investors too. Yeah, and what, and, what and, and then you make a really good point, Sam. The, the interesting thing about this current market is it really will define which business models will survive and which won't. Um, and last two years, um, I call turkey season because even a turkey would fly because it's been a complete bull market. Right. And people have been raising money at very high valuations for businesses that A shouldn't be listed and business models that don't really work. 
Um, and there will be a massive consolidation in the industry. And those business models that are good and profitable will actually be the ones that th- the, that flourish and they will become acquisitive because they will have cash and a balance sheet to buy other businesses cheap. Um, and the ones that have bad business models, um, and they'll either have to pivot or die. Uh, and you will see a collection of them either pivoting or dying. Um, it's already started, but it'll take quite a bit of time because a lot of them obviously saw this coming and pulled back their cash burn. So some of them are still sitting on some some reasonable money. Certainly, um, you know, there's been a lot of navel-gazing over the last kind of few months. Um, and I actually think now is there's been some very good buying opportunities because there's some very good companies that are trading at 30 40 50% of where they were, you know, um, two two years ago, um, one in particular is, you know, I'm not a stock picker and please, this is not financial advice, but um, Zero is a great company um, and it's trading at kind of 40% of where it was. And last time I checked, I have to pay their accounting software every month and I'm not switching it off. So, um, you know, in a recession, do you want to own a business that has massive recurring revenue is not going to be switched off and is half the price it was two years ago? And, you know, that's not a kind of valuation or anything that's just intrinsic. So I think there is good companies out there that will that will benefit. And they're obviously not small caps, but if you're looking at the small cap world, I've been looking hard at the business model and saying, is this something that's going to survive? Is it growing still? Is it a good business model? Or did it just benefit from lockdown during COVID, had artificial high numbers and is gone? Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, how is it funded? Are the board there to help fund it? Are they, you know, they're deep shareholders behind it? Is it a sustainable business model that people will keep keep funding? Um, or is it just going to kind of die? In which case, if it's going to die, you may as well take your loss now, get your tax loss and move on. It's going to die anyway. Um, the sooner you do that and kind of, re, you know, the worst the worst decision you go, I think you can make in investing is hanging on to a stock because it's hard and it's going to go back only up and you don't want to take a loss. I mean, you know... Um, it's probably, it's probably hard for yeah, a reason. Be, that's it. I was, you've answered some of the, my question there, Andrew, but I was going to ask, um, you, you sort of talked about looking at the business model or what the how it's being funded, but where would you recommend that investors go and look to sort of ascertain whether their company is going to be the acquirer or the acquiree down the line, do you think, in terms of information that's released to the market or if they should go in terms of In terms of the ASX being an investor in an ASX stock, you mean, yeah? Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. So if you're looking at an investment and you're thinking, is this going to be one that's going to wither and die or is it going to be the one that... First things first, things first is I look over. at whether or not in the last 12 months it's grown, right? Because people have generally cut down their expenditure on almost everything in the last six to 12 months. Uh, I know my mortgage has almost doubled and I'm, I'm uh, so, you know, everyone's sitting there going, do we need to pay for this still? So if it's something that you don't need to pay for, and if it's not a service, if it's a B2B that the business needs or the consumer needs, if it's a B2C business or whatever, um, then you sit there and you go, well, you know, if it's dropped 30% of its revenue in the last 12 months or or whatever, um, you question whether or not that business is sustainable. There may be a reason for that drop, but you're certainly going to ask yourself, say, well, where's the growth coming out of this? Because the stock price going back up will be driven by growth. If the business grows well, um, people will fall back in love with it in, in due course. Uh, so that's the first thing I'd look at. The second thing I'd look at is um, 
you know, the kind of last three or four announcements, where do they see the benefit of this company going? Where's the upside going? Um, and ask yourself, and the question I ask myself if I'm looking at a stock as to whether or not I sell it, I would say, would I buy that stock now? Because by holding it at a low value, you're actually buying it, right? So the question I ask is, would I buy that stock now? And if the answer is no, then I've got to ask myself, well, if I wouldn't buy it because I don't think it's going to go up, why would I hold it? Right. Um, so they're, they're the kind of tests. And then also um, have a good look at the board. Small caps are all determined by the strength or non-strength of the board. If they've got a track record of kind of taking shareholders' money, not creating a lot of value and, you know, taking lots of fees out or whatever, then you can almost guarantee that it's going to happen again. Whereas if these if these directors have kind of put their own fees on hold, are putting money into the company and are trying to grow it and doing all the right things, then that's a different different story. Now that's a great point, particularly about directors not taking a fee, which you, you do see from time to time when 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 the going gets tough. Andrew, you mentioned uh, the, the the marriage reference or the making love. Uh, what can you can you um, delve into that a bit about you know what you would do to just leverage that listing to, to, to as you sort of indicated earlier? Well, I think I think a lot of it starts with news flow and planning. Um, so once you get listed. You know, a lot of CEOs go, okay, cool, we're listed now. I've got the money I needed to do X. I'm now going to just go and run my business. That is 100% the wrong way of, doing, of looking at it, right? Your business is now being ASX listed, right? That is part of your business. So you have to dedicate time to that. So the first thing you need to do is hire either someone to, someone who's a professional in PR and IR, or you may have the skills internally, and design a 12-month PR and IR calendar, Right? With various milestones, it might be release of the accounts and then a shareholder update call. It might be when you launch a mark a product to market, doing a product market launch and then doing a webcast about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And plan those announcements in that program. Plan your AGM, plan it all, and then make sure you dedicate time to execute on it. You have, you have, um, you know, you have times where you're going to have to get in front of investors. If you are operations, for example, in America, make sure the CEO is back here at reporting season and does two days, one day in Melbourne, one day in Sydney, maybe a day in Perth, going to see all the investors, doing the roadshows, doing the coffees and, and getting your story out there. That is part of maintaining your listing. Um, so that's kind of putting that effort in there is incredibly important. That's kind of the first thing. Um, second thing is uh, manage your register. Find out who, certainly for the few months after listing, find out who's buying and selling. Right, and then go talk to them. Most institutional investors, when they sell stock, if you ring up the fund manager and go, "Oh, I saw you put a million shares through the market last week," do you not believe me anymore? Do you not? Why are you selling? And they may, there might be a multitude of reasons, but but they might have they might say, "Well, the perception is you're not growing the business and you're running out of money." So guess what? Your next announcement can address those two points: that either you're funded or you've got capital coming in the door, or or and or that you are growing, but they've misinterpreted a result one way, or you're focusing on getting your margin better and not growth, so your capital's going to making efficiencies or whatever, right? But but listen to the market and then act on the feedback, you know, and 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 always listen to the market in terms of price. I hate a CEO that walks in and goes, we're actually worth 25 cents a share, but the market only values us at five cents a share. I mean, the market values the stock 
And if you think the market's wrong, then you're wrong because the market is the market. And yes, as long as as long as you're promoting the company and getting your information out there and doing all the things you're doing, then the stock price should be an actual reflection of what the market thinks of the, of the company. And if you think that they're wrong, then you're not listening to the market and you're not understanding that, that it's a very efficient market, the ASX. It's, it's highly liquid and trades regularly. So if people think it's, you know, kind of it's wrong, well, I think they're wrong. I think that communication with shareholders of all sizes is a really interesting one. And I was been reflecting over the last few months, actually, that the only time as a shareholder I've ever been contacted by a company has been when they're undertaking a capital raise, you know, whether it's a rights issue that I've got a phone call to participate in, or maybe it's because I've got a, a holding and the company's calling and they're sort of saying, oh, you know, that's, that's a, it's a prelude to the raising money, basically, rather than just finding mm. out why I was a shareholder. And, and, and I might say that there's quite a lot of technology solutions now available for public companies to interact with um, with their, their database through social media. Um, with through their register um, and small cap companies. I mean, I think there's one in, one out of Melbourne called Amplify, run by Fresh Equities, which is which is pretty good. And there's a few other ones, and um, and um, and you know, for a couple of grand a month or whatever it is, if you invest in that as a public company, um, you know, it makes the ease of communication with shareholders much better and much more frequent and logical. Um, the other point is ha- make sure you have a really investor-friendly website. People can go to, download the announcements, sync live with the ASX. It's not that hard to do, not that expensive. Um, and use that and build your investor database, Use you know, collect emails, et cetera, and use it to communicate with your investors um, regularly and often and do Q&As. And don't be afraid to ask, to answer difficult questions. I hate CEOs that duck difficult questions because it looks like they've got something to hide. And after all, it's a shareholder's company. They're funding it. I think that's a bit that a lot of um, shareholders sometimes forget is that whilst it might be hard to get the information they want, it's their company at the end of the day. And often they might own more shares than the yeah. um, And the CEO good thing does. about the ASX, if you don't like the company, you get to sell the shares, right? And, and, and um, you know, someone once stood up at a PBL um, meeting and had a go at Kerry Packer about about him and James's fees, and he said, "Well, if you don't like it, sell your shares. I own more shares than you." And and that's kind of the way public companies work. Um, it's simplistic, but you know it, you can literally vote with your feet. You can buy more shares, sell more shares, or you know vote vote board change, etc. Um, if if you wish to. Uh, very interesting, Andrew. Uh, I could definitely delve into that for. Much longer, particularly sort of that's the day job that I do, and I, but I do agree that uh, you know shareholders should be getting uh, a sentiment of their shareholders very often because they are like customers. But I do want to come back to the one of your main sort of thrusts, which is that you know um, there might well be consolidation. You know, the, the last couple of years have been quite easy, but um, in line with sort of what we're trying to talk about this episode, I mean. Do you have any advice or do you have any strategies for, for companies to, to leverage any opportunities in the current market? I know you've, you've got some ideas about, you know, buying assets. Yeah, definitely. For, for, yeah. Um, I mean, this is really kind of, I think we're seeing a once-in-20-year asset um, devaluation, um, in my view. There's, there's, I think assets are, gonna, are cheaper now than they're going to be for a long time. Um, valuations have still come back, have come back enormously. 
Um, and and there's a lot of companies out there that need capital and are happy to do deals. Um, and you shouldn't be afraid to kind of use your balance sheet. Um, debt capital is available for ASX-listed companies um, generally. Yes, it's expensive. It's often a lot cheaper than substantial dilution. Um, so if you can, if you're looking at a company that might have you know, take an e-commerce business, right? It's got ten, twenty million dollar revenue, makes a couple of million bucks a year. It's usually a pretty tight margin on e-commerce, maybe ten percent. Um, if it can, it, it's paying all its ASX listing costs and all its things with that kind of EBIT. Um, you know, it may be able to buy another another company either on ASX or privately um, for the same sort of you know turnover. Uh, it, and and I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is it's got to grow quickly out of that naught to $20 million market cap as fast as possible to get out of that range to actually kind of be, to pay, it costs half a million to a million dollars a year to be listed. So as soon as you see the companies at that sort of level, they've really got to grow and get a much bigger business fast to actually use their ASX listing. If not, they get caught in this trap of kind of, making enough money simply to pay the listing and pay the staff but not growing and the share price will just trade downwards because it's got no story it's got no growth investors all buy stocks because they think it's going to be more more valuable the next day after they buy it right they don't buy it to make a loss so you have to have a have a path to achieve a bigger business and it might be organic growth through sales and marketing and that's fine but if it's organic growth through sales and marketing you really have to grow quite fast you can't grow at ten percent per annum because that's 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 just almost just keeps pace with inflation, and so you really want forty to kind of hundred percent growth. And and there's very few businesses that do that, and a lot of them haven't haven't had valuation drops. But they're the buyers of other businesses that can be plugged in, and look for those synergistic acquisitions. You know, um, I mean, the reason Coca Cola many years ago bought Mount Franklin Water was because they had trucks going to to various convenience stores dropping off coke and they could put water on the same trucks and deliver it and it was cheap right so they had the infrastructure it was a logical synergistic acquisition and there's lots of other companies that are in that space i mean i know you know a company that might sell some form of software to enterprise clients they could they should be buying other companies that plug that software in and, and white label it and kind of get more scale that way when you're talking to an advising company Andrew if maybe it's about this sort of idea or suggestions, what sort of um, pushback do you sometimes get from inside companies if they think, do you do you get pushback? And what sure. Is um, the first one is what I call paradigm paralysis. Um, and that's, that's, a, that, that's kind of a well-known term. And what it is is the CEO or the board or the chairman or the founding shareholder who might always be the CEO is so wedded to their business model that they're unlikely or unwilling to pivot. And they will not accept that their business model is simply just not working for whatever reason, right? And the best CEOs will go, yep, it's not working, let's try something else. Or let's tweak this, let's try that, let's do this, let's do that. And they keep flogging that dead horse and all they do is just burn shareholder capital, right? Um, and if it's not working, then you need to pivot and make it work. Um, to my point. So that's kind of the first thing I encounter when I speak to a lot of ASX um, public companies. Uh, the second is they have over-promised and under-delivered is kind of the second biggest problem. And that is 
generally linked to problem one, which is their business model isn't working. Um, and 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 they kind of overpromise and then they never take ownership of it and say, we stuffed this up, let's move on. Third aspect, they often don't listen to their shareholders. Shareholders will be telling them something, particularly major shareholders. Um, I know of a number of shareholder groups that are very activist um, and actively will ring the CEO, will ring the chairman, will ring me. I've been director of many ASX listeds and I'm currently director of some ASX listeds. So, you know, we get calls from major shareholders and part of our job is to interact with them and listen to them. And if you're kind of too arrogant or too short-sighted to do that, um, then they're going to get upset, sell their stock, and you will become unpopular with the markets pretty fast. Um, so that's kind of the other responsibility. The other thing is a lot of people get carried away by being ASX listed and they start spending money on stupid things like expensive premises and you know business class flights and whatever. A lot of the a lot of the small cap ASX listed are still basically startups, right? They're small caps and they should be watching the pennies like a small cap um, because money is not infinite. Capital is always finite. The opportunities are infinite to do with that capital. Um, and, and you really need to allocate your capital to get the best bang for your buck for the shareholders. And um, a lot of people spend it on stuff that doesn't create value. Like I've never seen office premises that are glitzy in a top-tier office tower for $30 million market cap make any sense whatsoever. Um, likewise, having offices for most exploration mining companies, registered offices, they don't really need an office. Um, a lot of the stuff, I mean, if you're going to have an office, you have a side office where you're drilling your holes, right? That's where they should be spending their money. You get rewarded as an exploration company by finding something, not by having a nice office in either Sydney or Perth or wherever it is. If you mentioned, I guess, when a business model isn't working and just ploughing ahead and trying to clog a dead horse, mm. do you find there's often, there's ever a um, a constraint where from a listed company's point of view they've raised money by a prospectus and that there's an obligation or an expectation that that money is spent in a certain way and is that actually realistically a, something that requires the company to spend the money on what they've promised or yeah that's a really good question and i've actually advised lots of companies on this specific issue so my view is when you lodge your prospectus that is your expectation of what you will be doing as a company going forward right that does not sit there as the governing document for the next two years of your operations, right? And I think it's more negligent by a board to keep spending money on something they know is not working, right, because they said in a prospectus they would do that. I don't think anyone, including the regulator, would crucify or investigate or criticise a board for pivoting a business model and preserving shareholders' funds and deploying them in a different way to create value for the shareholders, even though their prospectus said one thing six or 12 or 18 months ago, right? The prospectus, but, I mean, to, to not do what you're doing in the prospectus and not have a go at it, right, is just dishonest. You have to do what you're going to say you're going to do. and But if you can see that not working, and I'll give you an example. Take the mining analogy because it's easy, Right. You have a prospectus that says we're going to drill 15 holes on X tenement, right? And, you know, normally you drill holes quite a bit apart and then you space the holes in between, right? If you find something, you do what they call infill drilling. You know, you might drill five or ten holes and find nothing. Um, 
And at that point, they might reassess and go, we're not going to drill the last five holes and we're going to save the half a million dollars, right? Um, and that's a judgment call the board's made. And then you're backing the expertise on the board and the geologists, et cetera. But I don't think people should make the decision to drill the last five holes because they said it in a prospectus. I think they make the decision based on what, what they call as the business judgment rule, which is part of the Corps Act now. And um, you, 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 t- you do your diligence, you read your information as a director, and you make the best decision you can. Um, and, and, and I don't think the, pros- the prospectus rules are to ensure that what's in the document is accurate at the time. It does not live forever. Right? right, it doesn't. I mean, you know, if you kind of pivoted your business model three weeks after you listed, I think people would be pretty upset with you. Um, but uh, you know, once you've given it a reasonable go, spend some money on it. If it's not working, um, then it's almost negligent to keep flogging that horse, right? Yeah, it's just I just find it interesting because obviously the ASX, the new rules have made it more prominent the reporting obligations on that spend, and so it's in yeah, a lot so of updates the shareholders might see. But, but the form is drafted, and I was kind of part of the committee, the consultation committee that brought in those changes. Um, and, and the form is drafted so that you report against it, but you can explain why not. So you can actually say, because we've drilled holes and we can find anything, we're not going to spend any more money on that tenement, right? And there's, there's the doors open to do that. And I've seen a lot of companies do that. I mean, I'm using the mining analogy again, but... You might have a sales and marketing strategy for a tech company that's not working or they've launched into the US but they can't get any traction. No one in the US wants that product because there's an, a market-leading technology which you're up against that no one wants to switch from, right? Like that happens too. So you say, you know, we've spent $500,000 having three staff going around the US for six months trying to make sales. They've made no sales not working. We're going to not spend another million dollars on US growth, right? Like um, it's kind of logical. That's that's really really fascinating, Andrew. And um, you know, like obviously you mentioned mining companies, right? So you know, we've been involved in mining companies. Investors have, and they've seen a dust up, and it's become a shell now. And the most common thing we've seen, and that's why I was curious to ask: when does it constitute a change to chapters one and two or the listing rules? Like, where's do the ASX have some leniency? How does this all how does this all take place? Can you can you shed some light into this process? It's a dark art. That's all I can say. Um, it's not. It's not perfect. Um, so I've seen companies metamorphosize between the two, um, and, and that normally is when um, it kind of is a synergistic business. So if you take a gold producer, and then it goes kind of to copper, and then it might go to lithium. It's still a junior explorer, and the ASX is unlikely to kind of throw chapters one and two at it, right? But if it's a lay-down bazaar, like it's a tech company going to mining or mining going to biotech, et cetera, then you'll almost definitely have a chapter one and two issue. But it also depends on the quantum of the two businesses that might be put together and where the capital is being raised and where it goes um, and the level of operations in the current business. So if you've got a business that does nothing, uh, and hasn't spent any money and it's just a cash box, basically a shell, um, almost anything it does thereafter will be a change of nature of scale, right? Because its operations are effectively zero. So anything new becomes a change of nature and scale, which triggers chapters one and two. Um, but, you know, from my point of view, I've done 
probably more backdoor listings than almost anyone I reckon in Australia. I've done about 25, 30 of them. Um, and uh, again, they're like an IPO. You have to do it right and do it well um, to create value. I mean, I, I recently I was involved in, in the listing of Ripe Limited, which was an ASX technology company um, that got taken over, I think it was about 300, 350 million. Um, and that company came on at $12 million market cap. I listed it. And I, eight years later, it got taken over. Um, and at the time, it was a it was a mining shell, effectively. Um, and 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 we did a proper chapters one and two to the reverse takeover, and we put it back on. And as a result, the shareholders of the shell and the target and everyone made a lot of money out of it. Um, and it was a very successful transaction because the business that went into it was quality. Management team came on, was quality, and they delivered. So a backdoor listing is not dissimilar to an IPO. If you have the right business and the right management and look at the same tests, um, you know, so make your decision. If you own shares in a shell and it's going through a backdoor listing, ask yourself, do you want to own the new business that's going in? If you don't, then you may as well sell, right? Because, again, you ask yourself, would I invest in this thing? And if the answer is yes, then maybe buy some shares on the reverse takeover. Most of the reverse takeovers, the existing shareholders will have usually some form of rights issue or priority offer. Um, and if you kind of look at the guys that are bringing the deal to the table and they've got a track record of building value in shells and introducing projects into public companies and creating value, then um, I think there's, there's, there's benefits to RTOs. The statistics, though... And ASIC published some statistics on these recently. I can't remember, and I, I, I should remember, but I think it was something like 60 or 70% of RTOs were below their issue price 12 months later. Right, so most of them don't work. Is that dissimilar to IPOs, do you know, Andrew? Yeah, the, the stats of RTOs being down on 12 months is, is higher than the IPOs. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, I suppose on that, it's purely higher. In general, what would be the appeal for a vendor of a project to put it into a, a shell company rather than a front door listing. If the I if the if well generally only two reasons, cash and spread. If the shell has cash in it, then you need to raise less. That's the first one. And often the shell has cash that it can can kind of give across to the target business um, as part of that listing process, right? So they, um, it's not dissimilar for a shell to make a loan across to a target to fund it while they do the merger transaction. So you can access the capital as one reason. The second is um, spread, shareholder spread. Normally a shell will come with 50 or 100 shareholders of marketable parcels of $2,000 worth each. And you can use that when you relist. Andrew, are you seeing as you said you're on the working group, we're kind of like I know Joel and I find this very fascinating and I hope our listeners are getting something from it too. But the constant feeling in the back of my mind, and the episode title is Navigating the ASX and, and the Listing Rules, what's been the sort of premise and the movement from the ASX on, on tightening rules like the Chapters 1 and 2 and the different reporting requirements? Because some of the older investors might remember when you used to look at an Appendix 3B, then it became an Appendix 2A, then it became a proposed issue of securities, and then you've got application of securities, cessation of securities. It's very confusing. I I'm just interested in your thoughts on where the ASICs and, and the rationale behind it. Yeah, um, I've got to be careful what I say here. Um, the 
I should oh. note, sorry, Andrew, and uh, if anyone from the ASX is listening, reach out to us because we've tried to um, ask them questions and have them on the show many times before. I think that's important. I, I, that I it's there. The last round of listing rule changes, which, you know, I wrote a 10 or 12 page paper about, um, I think overcomplicated a number of aspects of the ASX. I didn't think, um, I didn't think you needed to split a appendix 3B form into three different forms. I think it's a 3B, a 3A and a 2A now or whatever it is. Um, and, and, um, the ASX recently has become a lot more bureaucratic in my view that I've ever dealt with before. It's very much, um, it's very, they are tightening their compliance on their own listing rules much, much harder. They don't want to be an exchange for everyone anymore. They want to be a very good exchange with high integrity. So the small companies that they used to kind of either turn a blind eye to or allow on, they simply just won't list anymore. Um, they won't list them. They won't put them on. And if they're on, they want to push them off. Um, rules like the compulsory delisting of long-term suspended companies was one of those examples. You know, they basically said, if you're going to be suspended for a couple of years, you're no good and we'll kick you off. Um, and that's counter-financial counter for them because they get money for the listing fees. So as long as you're listed every year, you, you kind of you get paid, but they just don't want you on the market anymore. They don't care. So I think that's probably good in a way for some investors for integrity. Um, you know, I I have a problem and express this concern with the reporting against your prospectus requirements for the, the kind of eight eight um you know the eight quarters afterwards for the, the first two years after your list reporting against what you said in your prospectus. Um, my problem, and you alluded to it before, is that directors are generally risk adverse and I don't want to get to the situation where a company is not in not interested in pivoting from its business model because it's worried about its liability for a prospectus, whereas, whereas the right thing to do is pivot. But it's worried that the investors might sue them because they said X in a prospectus six or 12 or 18 months ago, right? I think that discourages innovation discourages efficiency in a market, um, and that's not what the ASX is for. Um, uh, but, you know, I do, uh, as long as there's not repercussions from pivoting, then I'm okay with it, but I, I'm yet to see any class actions on that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, I think um, generally, I think the ASX does a pretty good job, I must say. It's pretty tough. You know, I've operated in other markets around the world, Canada, Hong Kong, Singapore, AIM in the UK. And I've done work with companies listed on those. There's a market we, we're 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 well regarded worldwide, um, and and you can be pretty sure that if you're investing in an ASX listed company, um, you know the ASX is watching that company well usually, um, and certainly ASIC is. The amount of scenarios I've had over the years, both as a lawyer and as an advisor, um, where the regulators sent me either a please explain letter or rung me and said, can you please talk me through this? Um, when they're curious about a transaction or a trade, um, you know, I, I am, I am, uh, you know, I say to all the people I work with, big brothers watching, and they should because it's their job to watch. Now, look, Andrew, certainly not suggesting anything uh, other than just wanting to get a bit of an understanding and certainly appreciate that regulation is there for a reason. Corporate governance principles, standards is designed to protect investors and, and first punters. And certainly um, everyone knows there's been a lot of new retail investors over the last couple of years. 
Um, this has all been really good, Andrew, and I think we're coming near the end, but are there any specific do's and don'ts for investors? Yeah, um, do check, think, research, ask questions before you invest. Um, don't invest because someone at the hairdresser or the the, the, the gym said, oh, it looks good, mate. Um, that's a great way to lose your money. Um, like, think about it. Um, ask other people. You know, um, there's lots of, there's a whole network of professional advisors, whether it's kind of someone like me in terms of for a company, how to get that company going, what to do, et cetera, um, right through to, you know, brokers, stock markets, lawyers, accountants, blah, 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 speak to people about it. Um, also realise that with small caps in particular, um, it's risky, right? We're at the riskier end of the market. And you need to be driving your returns that way because it's riskier. If you want to kind of, you know, get a stable, more stable company and a stable return by the ASX top 20, like that's what they are. Um, some of them go up and down pretty pretty fast as well. But, but generally, they're more stable and, and more liquid than little companies. You've got to realise that you're playing in that, um, um, that, that, that small cap space. Andrew, just to provide some closing thoughts, I guess perhaps just uh, the do's and don'ts of a listing. Yeah, don't overpromise and underdeliver. Do it the other way around. Underdeliver and overpromise. <laughs> um, you know, so make sure that you whatever you're saying to the market, you hit the hit the milestones and deliver on. Otherwise, you will lose your credibility. That's the most important, right? Uh, second, um, don't list a company and then just do nothing and go back to running your business. Put some time, put some effort, get a PR and IR program. Dedicate time to going to do an investor roadshow once a quarter, once every six months. Um, give give the listing and the and the shareholders some some attention. Um, don't don't over promote. Um, a lot of companies want to put out an announcement every three weeks or three minutes. The market then can't work out what's noise and what's real. Um, so make sure you selectively put out announcements. Um, if a company's announcing more than once a month, it's probably too much. Um, and so, you know, that's a kind of rule of thumb and make them important announcements. You know, um, I was involved in a company that used to announce $50,000 worth of a contract sign. No one cares, right? Um, but, but you know, if it's a real, real big deal, then you should announce it. You have to under the listing rules. Um, as I said, it's like a marriage. Make sure you give it some love, chocolates, flowers, et cetera, um, because you, you get out what you put into it. And monitor your register, monitor your shareholders, monitor what they're saying, monitor who's buying and selling and actively kind of speak to people and understand what the institutional fund managers are thinking. If, if for no other reason than when you need to raise money, you've spoken to them all and they all know you and they like you, uh, that's important as well. Um, building that rapport and trust with your shareholder base means they'll support you ongoing. And they're kind of the main points and mistakes that small caps make. And probably the last one is hire professional people and don't be afraid to pay for it. Um, you have to build in your budget um, professional people, uh, professional COSEX, professional lawyers, professional corporate advisors, PR and IR, um, and, um, and they're not all top-tier expensive. There's a lot of lawyers, for example, that specialise in small ASX-listed companies that are outside top firms um, that don't pay. You don't have to pay top firm rates, but they're highly competent and, and experienced in small caps. Same with uh, you know company secretaries. Um, there's, there's some of the big registries and big markets do it, but then there's lots of boutiques that kind of do it well and 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 on an ongoing basis. 
Brilliant. Andrew, if anyone listening wants to get in touch, where should they get in contact with you or where should they be pointed towards? Um, so I'll just give my email address is andrew at prandium, P-R-A-N-D-I-U-M.com.au, uh, Prandium Capital. Um, you can get in touch with me through, through through that, through LinkedIn, through website, et cetera. Um, and please, yeah, reach out. Happy to chat to people. Always looking at either investments or or um, or, or, or stuff that people need a hand with. At the moment, I'm kind of doing a number of IPOs and some corporate strategy work, uh, and it's fun. Good, it's a good climate and a good market to do that in. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation, and I'm sure guests and listeners are going to get a lot out of it as well. Thank you for joining us on the show, Mike. Thanks for having me, guys. Nice to, nice to chat. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.